I want to tell you about our biggest ever event that we are running on the 8th of July in London called Master Your Music Live. And this event will include six different masterclasses on topics such as music production, mixing, music marketing, vocal production, and loads more, as well as having a dedicated session just for networking so that you leave with a bunch of new friends. At the moment, tickets to this event is free for all podcast listeners, but they are limited so please make the most of this opportunity. We will also be having a huge giveaway worth over $2,000, which will be available for one lucky attendee. So grab your ticket today at musicproductionforwomen.com master dash your dash music, or please use the link in the show notes. I look forward to seeing you then. Uh, <laughs> this is MPW, 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 the podcast with your host, Zyla Aria. Cool. A podcast about music, music production, production for the everyday, everyday musician, where we learn from experienced studio engineers and each other. Amy Nolte is a jazz singer, pianist, and YouTube sensation. She graduated from Brigham Young University, where she got her music degree with an emphasis in jazz. Amy started her YouTube channel in 2016 and has now over 250,000 subscribers. She performs all over the LA area and is a highly sought after guest artist and clinician in the jazz world. Welcome to the podcast, Amy. It's really, really lovely to have you here. And you mentioned it's about 3 p.m. where you are. So how's your day been so far? It's been pretty good, except for an unforeseen plumbing circumstance, but it's getting sorted. So it's all right. Thanks for having me on your show, Zyla. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. And oh, these things always happen unexpectedly, I guess, and we just have to get through them. So yeah. (laughs) That's all good. So I am very keen to talk to you about chords and how to use them in your music creation and your thoughts on that. But before we do that, I'm very keen to learn a little bit more about your career and where did things start for you in music and how did you get to where you are today? Um, When I was very small, My mom and my grandmother, grandfather, they would sing to me all the time. And I think we took a lot of car trips to keep me amused or quiet. They would just sing song after song after song. And so I think they learned that I liked to sing early on. And then um, we had a piano in the house and I started to be able to pick out melodies on it by ear. And my mom thought, oh, we should probably get her some piano lessons. So I took classical piano lessons for 10 years. But in the meantime, I was always trying to do things by ear, and I wasn't discouraged from doing that. I think they were always proud of me when I came up with things by ear and could start playing songs from the radio that I would hear and stuff just, you know, by hearing them. And they thought that was cool, but I don't think they really knew what to do with that. And then sometime in like high school, I started to discover jazz and that in jazz, you're highly encouraged to make stuff up and to learn by ear. And that really rang true for me. So from the moment I discovered that there was such thing as an improvised solo and that that was over the structure of chords, I was like, that's it for me. I, I want to do this. So after that, I went to college and I got my bachelor's degree, uh, jazz piano. And then I've just been playing however I can and uh, ever since, I guess. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. And it's great that you were encouraged to, you know, improvise and learn pop songs as well if you wanted to because I have heard sometimes from people especially when they start in the classical route 
that maybe that hasn't been encouraged and then that ends up being off-putting to music altogether for these people. So it's great that that wasn't the case for you. Yeah, you're right. It can be the case. I've met a lot of people who were discouraged at an early age and it stopped them in some way or another. I'm so glad that my family gave me support and they were always just proud of me for that. Oh, that's good. Great to hear. So can you tell me about an event in your life that you feel like you have learned the most from? Well, maybe I'll say it's having children. I'm the mom of four and uh, my oldest is just about 24 and my youngest is just about 17. So for a long time, I've had other people to put first kind of, and it doesn't mean that I don't put myself first sometimes and often, but I think that just the choice that my husband and I made to have kids was instrumental for my life. And I've always been um, aware that there's somebody else to put before myself sometimes and to watch grow and to learn from and to teach and to laugh with and experience, you know, highs and lows with. And I've been really thankful for the company. (laughs) So for me, having a bunch of wonderful people in my life that I love and love me has been the key, uh, even the key to making music better. (laughs) Oh, that's so, so beautiful. And to hear the impact on you and everything you do as well, which is really, really lovely. Thanks. I, I, I mean, I also want to say it's not the only way. Those close people in your life don't have to be your kids. But I think that, you know, whether it's your sisters or brothers or friends or whoever, just having some people to take care of you and that you take care of is I think that's, yeah, that's important. Oh, that's beautiful. And can you tell me one random fact about yourself that maybe not that many people in music know about you? Let's see. Okay, here's one. Yesterday I was at my son's volleyball game and they got a ball stuck up in the rafters. And I realized about myself that I really like games where you have to aim and hit. So like, you pick a tree in the distance and everybody gets three rocks and who can hit the tree in three throws or who can skip a rock the most times on the lake. Or like yesterday when that ball got stuck, I had a deep need inside me to be the one that got to get it out of the rafters. Of course, I I didn't do that. I'm a 45-year-old mother who just sat on the bleachers. (laughs) But but I, I really like those kind of... Sometimes we'll just like take a cooking pot in the house and just set it somewhere and then give everybody a pair of socks rolled up and we, and we play sock in the pot. Like you can, <laughs> I really like oh to, my gosh. To, to try to aim and, and hit. <laughs> that is indeed a random fact. There's a random fact for you. <laughs> um, but yeah, sock in the pot, that sounds like a great game. I feel like I need to get that going here. It could be global, <laughs> right? Anywhere, sock in the pot. <laughs> yeah. I reckon. I reckon this is going to be the next uh, global sensation, I think. (laughs) (laughs) So jumping then into chords and coordinating them in your uh, music creation, can we start, Amy, by just defining a few terms that people might hear all the time before we jump into more of the you know, some nitty gritty is about them, but could you start by defining what a chord is? Um, let's see. A chord is a group of notes, usually uh, three or more, I'd say, yeah, three or more played at the same time to provide harmonic structure, maybe. Yeah. Oh, I love that. That's a great definition. 
And how about the term arpeggio? Three or more notes played in succession, often repeating. Mm. Yeah. Okay. I mean, so like I do have a piano right here, you know, a chord could be uh, right three notes played at the same time, but arpeggio would be to play them one at a time and then maybe again and again and again like that. Okay. Oh, that's great. Lovely to have the piano with us as well. And how about an inversion? An inversion is taking a group of notes and playing them or striking them all at the same time, but in a different order. So taking the bottom one and putting it on the top. And oftentimes you can do that a few times, depending on how many notes you have. There's probably a better way to say that, but there you go. (laughs) I mean, and it would sound like this, right? Yes. Okay. So playing kind of the same chord, but in different ways. Yeah. The notes would be in in a different order. It's like if you have the numbers one, two, and three, and then uh, like a set of numbers, and then you decide to instead do two, three, and one, or three, one, and two, like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's great. How about extension? Extensions are any note seven or above, I think, on a chord that typically provide more advanced harmony. So if you have four notes, any notes above this can can be uh, considered an extension. Okay. Oh, that's good. So that's given us a good place to start. And how would you say an understanding of chords can contribute to the emotional impact of a piece of music? Harmony is such an emotional component of music. It's probably the one that I talk about most on my YouTube channel and one that I really love. I mean, I love melody maybe equally as much, but the harmony, it can set a mood. And you, I don't know if you're composing, knowing different flavors and different extensions, different colors that chords can make can give you the, you know, an underlying foundation for what you're creating that can just shift everything. And you hear it all the time in, in movie music, you know, you could hear something. But as soon as we get like a, ah, like your eyebrows raise, right? Like I knew that it would sound like that before I even played the notes of a diminished seventh chord right then, because I understand that, you know? So having an understanding of, of the way that chords make you feel can be so integral in your own creation. That's great. And to hear that in the piano, I, I could feel those emotions like coming through me as I was listening. And it does seem so visceral that you kind of almost can't help feeling something with the change in those chords. Yeah, absolutely. You can notice it all the time. And I like to do that when I'm watching a TV show or whatever, anything that has music. If you notice it making you feel a certain way, just you can press pause and say, what is that? Why did everything change right now? What are they doing? And, you know, a little analysis. Film scores are great for learning about the emotion of music, I think. Yeah. Oh, that's such a good exercise to do. And I wonder if that makes the process of watching a movie a bit more meditative because you're kind of also looking within yourself of like what's changing and how is this impacting me? (laughs) Maybe only if you're alone. I don't recommend it when you're (laughs) watching with somebody else. (laughs) Oh, yes, that could be a pain. That's for sure. (laughs) So what would you say are some ways that you can make a very simple chord structure more interesting? Well... 
let's take one. If we just have C major, and then and then what if we have E minor, and then F, and then G? That's a fairly common chord progression to go one minor three four and five. Like that's a great chord progression, and it feels awesome. I mean, one thing you can do is to vary the way that you actually play those chords, right? You can... You can do that kind of a thing, and then it's pensive, right? And if I wanted some kind of a beat, I could... Right? All of a sudden that makes you want to tap your foot. Like, so you've got control, even just using the simple notes of triads, which is all I'm doing right here, just three notes for every chord. But if you'd like to add a little more color, you could just choose one of those chords and add a major seven. So what if we did that with a C major chord, made it C major seven? That changes everything right away, doesn't it? Especially because those notes, C, E, G, B, the E and the G and the B are an E minor chord, which is the chord that comes next. So, right, this is C major, but all I have to do is take the C off, and now it's almost the same chord, but it feels different. Now here's an F chord. Now, now what if instead of going to a G chord, what if I made it a G sus chord? Oh, that's the most religious chord in music. G sus. Sorry. Uh, and then we resolve it. That can change everything, right? Like you could also change things by adding a two. It warms things up. So instead of being instead of being C major, now we have C add two. Oh, it's like romantic all of a sudden, right? And I can do the exact same thing on this E minor chord. I can add a two and play an F sharp. Ah, oh, it's so sad. And then I can add it on the F chord. And again, romantic. And I could even do it on the G chord. So even just keeping all of the same root notes, there are different colors that I can add that have this visceral change immediately, right? And yeah, that's so fun. Wow. Oh my gosh. So many techniques. I'm like, oh, I want to try this right away. But yeah, so you, you mentioned just playing them a little bit differently to get a bit of a different feel and then potentially adding different notes to color the chords and change the way they move into the next chord as well, potentially. So that's great. And to hear that on the piano was really great to feel those changes. And when people talk about chord progression, they can sometimes, and I think you did mention it just then, talk about building tension and resolution. What do they mean by this? Mm. Well, there are chords that by nature are unresolved, by definition, are unresolved and need to take you someplace. So one of those kind of chords is a dominant seventh chord. And you can probably hear that just staying on that chord really makes you want to resolve. So there are several times where these kind of dominant seventh chords get used in music, right? Let's think about like even like Hank Williams. You'll walk the floor the way I do. Your cheating heart. What if I just left it right there on a G7 chord? That doesn't feel right, 
right? You, no. I'm driving everybody on the podcast crazy. Like they really yeah. want me to go, we'll tell on you, right? They really want me yeah. to. <laughs> so you have this um, power as a composer that you can choose to leave things unresolved if you want, and you can you know, choose your timing to resolve things that leaves people longing for a short or a long amount of time. And it's in your power. So yeah, dominant seventh chords are one way that you can have tension and resolve it. Then that chord is that way because it has this tritone in it. So in G7, it has a, a B is the third and, and the dominant seventh or the flatted seven is, is an F. And those two notes are what we call a tritone apart. And it's the least unsettled feeling in music. It's because that seventh wants to pull to the one. And it's because the four wants to pull to the three. They're each notes that are one step away from one, like the most important notes of the chords, the, the one and the three. Those are like super important in a chord. Another way is with suspensions. I did that just a second ago when I was playing, instead of just playing G to C, I played G suspended, and then I resolved it to C. And there are a few ways to play suspensions. And another way is to come at the tonic of wherever you are in a way that isn't normally done. Like maybe if instead of going from G to C, you, you choose to go B flat to C. Um, there are many ways, but uh, as you study music theory and learn about tension and release, I would just write down all the ways too, especially if you're trying to make people have an emotional response. But usually when you're composing, those kind of instances, I think they just happen and you feel when they should be. And I always try to let my gut guide me about that. I don't try to keep people you know, feeling a certain way. I, I don't really write like that. I can feel how I want it to be for myself and then I make it be that way, I guess. Mm. Oh, so many great things to think about there. And like you said, I guess sometimes it just comes out in the songwriting on where you feel like you need to build that feeling in someone else or in yourself to then resolve. So that's really, really lovely. And when you are songwriting do you have a process of starting with melody or chords or is it different every time I know it's different for everybody like my husband was in a rock band in college and he said every time they wanted to write a song his guitar player would just find a bunch of chords and play them in a row over and over and over again and then my husband would just sit there until he thought of a melody and he'd try out different things until something stuck I've never written a song like that in my life for some reason to me, it feels backwards. And I think just about every song I've ever written has been all about the melody. But typically when I think about a melody or when a, a nice melody comes into my head, the harmony just kind of comes right with it. And I, I can almost hear it all, not all the time, but, but most of the time I have a pretty strong idea of how I want my melodies to be supported. And a lot of times I'll, I'll be driving or walking and then some melody will come and I'll sing it in my phone. And then it, when I get back to an instrument, usually piano, sometimes it's been guitar, depending on where I'm at, but then I add harmony to the melody I've come up with. And then I, I typically jot it down because my memory isn't great all the time. So I, I just write it down so I won't forget it. And yeah, usually the, I guess the melody is just kind of 
forefront in my brain. And I, I think that the most beautiful songs in existence have some of the most beautiful melodies in existence, like just tunes that get ingrained in us that are so beautiful to us. We can't help but sing them, you know. And I guess your knowledge and in-depth understanding of the music theory helps a lot. But do you have any specific techniques for building chords around melodies that you use? Recently I made a YouTube video called The Most Beautiful Melodies in Existence. I was actually thinking of it a second ago when I was talking, but I try to take some of the prettiest melodies that I could think of and analyze what made them beautiful. And something that I found was that many of the most beautiful melodies that we know have a large skip in them, like a big interval, say... Uh, That one's so nice, right? Somewhere over the rainbow. So there are many, many different intervals that you can skip. I mean, what about a... Maria, he just kissed a girl named Maria. And that song actually does something that's beautiful, too. Um, of course, that's Leonard Bernstein from West Side Story. But he uses a tritone, that, that tension that we talked about, and resolves it up to the fifth... And, and he does that over the tonic chord. But then, after, he uses the exact same note, but with different harmony under it. We go to a, I think it's the five chord with the three in the bass, so G over B. Ooh, and he, he does the exact same notes, but they sound so different over both places, right? And it's like the first one is major tension, the second one is major resolve. Tension to resolve, right? So that's a beautiful way to think about making harmony under your melody or about making a melody. And another, like some other things that I discovered were a lot of times over a minor chord using a specific note, and a lot of times it's the 11, can be really powerful. And I don't know if I can think of one right now. Like if we're in C, um, it's that note. That's so nice. I can't, no, I can't think of one specifically, but um, if you watch my video, I know I hit on a few of them, and there are just some notes that have a beautiful pain to them, like a stab you in the heart kind of a, you know, you hear them and you just go, ah, it's going to tear my heart out. And I think the 11 on a minor chord is one of those. Okay. Well, I feel like I could just listen to you talk about different songs and playing them all day. Amy, this is really, really wonderful. <laughs> oh, that's nice of you. Thanks, Ayla. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And can you recommend any resources for people to learn some basic theory who currently don't have a theoretical background? Sure. I mean, these days, there's so many great resources on YouTube. So I can recommend some of my colleagues, my fellow YouTube creators. I think Bill Hinton has a great channel for teaching music theory, mostly as it relates to the piano, but I've referred several people to his videos. I think he explains things really well. Rick Beato, in his early videos, would make very detailed music theory videos with a whiteboard, and he does great explaining. There's also Jake Lizio from a YouTube channel called Signals Music, 
who's a great explainer of music theory, my friend Nare Sol, N-A-H-R-E-S-O-L, is a wonderful piano player, and she makes some great explanations of different concepts and theory as well. A book that I really like is Philip Tagg's book called Everyday Tonality. If you learn better by books, that's a really nice one. I, I think he does a, just a dynamite job of telling examples about theory and then giving you actual music examples. He'll list songs that you would be aware of, and he talks about chords in ways that apply to today's music. Okay, oh, lots of good ones there. And I would say your YouTube channel as well, <laughs> which is how we found you as well. <laughs> I should probably mention I have a new class that I have taught on the platform Nebula. It's a two-part class and the first part has already dropped and the second part will drop within a month and it's called Everything I Know About Chords. So um, if you go to go.nebula.tv slash Amy Nolte. That's how you'll find those classes. I think it's $30 for a year to sign up, but it'll give you access to every class that I have, as well as the whole Nebula platform, which is kind of like Netflix, but for only educational content. Wow. Oh, I'd never heard of it, actually. That's great. We will put a link to that in the show notes as well. I'm sure a few people will be very interested in that. Nice. And we actually had an audience question for you from Benny Coles, who asked, who was your best teacher and why? <laughs> I assume my best music teacher. I have had some good ones, some instrumental ones, and each of them taught me different things about music and about myself. I guess about in the second grade, the man who came to teach at my elementary school and took over the role of, you know, music teacher at elementary school, which elementary school was kindergarten through eighth grade in my small town of Weaverville, California, where I grew up. And so it was like the kind of thing where once a week, the whole second grade class would go to his, you know, music room and, and he would teach us to sing a bunch of songs. And because the first thing I learned from him was that he would just play chords to accompany us. And I'd try to sneak around and watch his hands. And I remember getting up the courage one day to just ask him, could you show me these chords? And he showed me just two or three chords. And then I went home and I tried to play every song I could using those three chords. And I realized that it was a lot of songs that I could play. And then I think my mom saw that I had such a strong response to his teaching that she asked, well, she, well, she did, my mom did a cool thing. If you ever, I don't know if you've heard of this in Australia, but in America, there's a program called GATE, and it stands for Gifted and Talented Education. And every kid, like in the third grade or something, takes this test. And if they determine that you are gifted and talented, then they put you in this special program that meets, I don't know, a couple times a week, and you get to learn more about astronomy or physics or whatever you know you're interested in. But I took that test a couple of times and didn't pass it, and my mom was mad, not at me, but she was like, I know that my kid is talented, but she's just not smart enough to pass this test. And um, could we please do something for her too? Is there anything music related that, because I, she needs some extra guidance, you know? And, mm. and anyway, they did this thing for me that would never be allowed today. It was crazy important for me. And it's that this teacher, Mr. Hoffenstein, and I would meet together, maybe just once a week, for like an hour, I would get pulled out of like math class or something. And, and that started in the fourth grade. 
and he just started teaching me. And so it was the two of us alone in a music room for an hour. That would, that's why that would never happen again, right? But he was a very sweet man. And he basically just started teaching me like music theory. And he would give me these little challenges to do. He'd set a, a you know a xylophone in front of me and, and he'd hum a melody and then ask me to play it. And he would give me a whole cassette tape full of Broadway songs from one musical and tell me that I had to listen to all of those songs and then write what I thought the plot of the musical was just by listening to those songs. And then he started sending me home with homework. I had to compose. He made me compose a song as a sixth grader for the eighth graders to sing at graduation. And then they did. Oh, my gosh. And then every year after that, they sang it at graduation for several years. He just, like, he challenged me. And when I got to college, I went to my first year classes, and I was bored. And I went to the professors afterward, and I said, I think I probably know this stuff already. And they were like, oh, do you want to just try to test out? And I tested out of the whole first year of my music classes. And it was all because of stuff I learned, like in the fifth, sixth, seventh grade from Neil Hoffenstein in that music room. So that was crazy important for me. And I did get a chance to thank him. He's passed away now, but uh, I got to tell him what that meant when I was a little older. So that was awesome. Good question, Benny. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's such a lovely story uh, to hear. And and sometimes maybe it's discounted in our lives, but the importance of teachers, especially when we are quite young and how impressionable we are and how the things that we can get introduced to can have such an impact on the rest of our lives. And it's really, really lovely to hear about your experience and how that's shaped you, I guess. Absolutely. And I encourage everybody, if you had anybody in your life that affected you, just tell them if they're still alive. You'll feel so much better if you just thank him. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, what was his reaction, Amy? Oh, man, he was such a heavy smoker. He barely had a voice by the time I contacted him. So I remember just being like, oh, man, I'm glad I called him today and not next week. (laughs) Because, yeah, but he was really touched. Yeah, it was a cool moment. I was glad I did it. Yeah. So now we are down to our speed quiz, Amy. What does that mean? (laughs) So it is quick fire five questions and you just have to pick one or the other as quickly as you can. So. Okay, let's go. Laundry or dishes? Uh, Dishes. Headphones or speakers? Headphones. Science or math? (sighs) Science. Festival or rave? Festival. Digital or analog? Mm, Analog. Oh, (laughs) that was great, Amy. That was pretty relatively speedy, I would say. Those are fun (laughs) questions. (laughs) That's good. That's good. So just coming to our top tips, Amy, what would you say is your one top career tip? I have one, but it's one that I didn't do myself. So I guess I learned this tip the hard way and not from experience. Well, yeah, maybe negative experience, but before you choose a college to go to, think about what city you want to live in. Because I went to college far away from where I ended up living. And so when I chose to live in LA, I had zero connections. I didn't know anybody. And it has taken a long time for me to feel like I'm involved in the music scene in LA in a way where, you know, because musicians talk about each other. They drop names all the time. Oh, you, you know this person? Oh, have you played with this person? And for so many years, I had to be like, no, I don't. Oh, you should really know this person, right? Like, 
okay, you know, and I would write down the name and, but that kind of stinks. Like if I would have gone to school here, as soon as I graduate, that would have been instant gigs for me, right? Even now, like I'll go play a gig with three people and, and I'll be like, how do you guys know each other? And they'll be like, oh, we all went to Cal State Northridge together. And it's 20 years later and they're still playing together. And that happens all the time that people take those connections that they made in college and use them forever because you make friends in college and you can get studio work, you know, session work, you can get gigs, you can get teaching opportunities, and just you can get introduced to other people. It's a network. Like networking is so big for musicians, especially jazz musicians. And so to just put a little forethought into where do I want to live someday? I think I'm going to go to school there too, is my tip. That's a great thing to mention. And I think in some episodes, the topic has come up of you know, should you go to college or should you try and just start your career yourself and jump into it? And there's been thoughts on both sides of that fence. And some people have mentioned, you know, you don't really have to go to college. But one thing that does come up consistently in that conversation is that one thing that's really hard to build without it is the network, which seems to be consistent with what you're saying as well. Yeah, that's true. It's maybe like if you asked me to make a pie chart of the reasons I, I'm glad I went to school, I mean, 70% of it would have been the people. Connections last. It's just much more convenient if you don't have to hop on a plane to make it happen. Yeah, true, true, true. It's a great thing to think about. So what is your one top self-care tip? Oh, I love that question. I think you just have to remember to have fun. So you got to know what makes you, oh, um, what's the Marie Kondo says, spark your joy. What the heck sparks your joy? And make sure that you're doing that for yourself. And for me, surfing is my main one. I try to get out and surf once a week because the moment that I hit that water, I just light up inside and I'm just like a little kid, you know? So whatever it is for you, don't feel like you can't give yourself that time, you know, to make fun for yourself you might run into people in your life who are like, I wanted to go on a run today, but I couldn't, I had too much work to do or something. But to me, I mean, I mean, sometimes you can't, but to give yourself that recharge can be everything for your mental health and it'll follow you to your work. It'll make your work so much better if you make sure to take time to have fun. Definitely. Oh, it's a great, great thing to think about and build into your day and make sure that you have the time for it because I'm the same. If, if those kind of things go out the window, then I feel like everything starts falling apart for me. So yeah, um, so it's really, really important. And what would you say is your one top general life tip? Well, I guess it's to realize that anything could come your way at any time. Like life can throw you a curveball, and it could be a good one that makes everything change for you and everything better, or it could be a completely devastating one that knocks you down for a really long time and just kind of knowing that life is about the highs and lows at least to me it is it's about uh, learning the difference between the two and being able to exist anyway is uh, important I've had life throw me some pretty hard curveballs and to just know like just keep in your mind that anything could change at any time nothing is guaranteed and be able to roll with it and retain some amount of resilience, at least as much as you can, 
it's just an important mindset for me to remember that life can throw me a curveball. Yeah, no, that's a very profound tip there to mention. And it reminds me of like the Buddhist philosophy of impermanence and everything is ever-changing and to know that whatever is happening now, if it's good to cherish that and to know that things will continue to change and, and that can be for in either direction. But uh, yeah. You've said it better really than I did. Thank about. you. I didn't think so. <laughs> I thought it was beautiful what you said. So that was really, really lovely, Amy, and just so lovely to have you and your piano there as well. And it was <laughs> much nicer to hear both of those things with your words and also with the sound. And it added so much, which we've never had on an episode before. So it was really, really great. So thank you oh, so much. Oh, groundbreaking. Nice. <laughs> it was 100%. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So that was lovely. So thank you so much, Amy. And is there much else on for the rest of your day? I'm going to go play some pickleball. Do you know that sport? I have heard about it a lot lately, in fact, and I feel like I need to look it up. <laughs> yeah, it's time for some fun. <laughs> Excellent. Good stuff. All right. Thanks, well, thanks for having me. That. Okay. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much, Amy. Thank you. My biggest three takeaways from Amy's episode was firstly that adding tension and release to a song can keep the listener on edge and wanting more and there are different ways to do this. One of them is by using dominant seventh chords. My second biggest takeaway is that you can make a simple chord progression sound a lot more interesting by adding additional notes such as seconds and sevenths to give the chords more color. My last takeaway was that there are now many resources on YouTube to improve your music theory knowledge and channels such as those by Bill Hinton, Rick Beardo, Nari Sol and also Amy Nolte herself are a great place to start. That's it from us this week. I hope you enjoyed the episode and we look forward to seeing you in two weeks.